You may be seated. Well, good morning again and welcome to Grace Bible Church. This morning. Morning. I always count on Ricky to give me that that great that greeting. We're going to return again this morning in our, to our study in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, it says on the top of the bulletin, Ephesians 3, 1, 3 through 6, but actually, you've got to give me some credit, Jonathan, we're going to be in verse 7. In verse 7. I know I'm going slow. Yeah, that's okay. It's okay. I, I, know, I know what you're up to. It's all good. It's all good. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. This is, uh, again, a continuation of the series, uh, the sermon title, One Times Three Equals Infinity. Uh, One God in three persons equals infinite blessings. And so it's really a study study of the Trinity and how the Trinity is has saved us. I just want to also, I know Jonathan mentioned the Worthman's leaving. I, I just want to, it looks like Alec maybe has left the room, and that's, so he'll miss this, but, but I just want to thank them for their service over the past year, coming, you know, knowing they came, uh, really knowing that they probably, probably wouldn't be here very long, and yet they, they came and served with all their heart. It's such a, a blessing to us as a church and to me as a as a pastor to have folks like Alec and Tori who have come and done so much and I'm sad to see you guys go but but I'm thankful that you guys are are um, able to go and and do what it is the Lord would have you do so you can pass that along to Alec let me pray for us Heavenly Father we thank you this morning again we pray for this time of opening your word that we would um, just in, enjoy the time of hearing your word expounded. But Lord, I pray that it would be with power, not because of me. Lord, I'm a, as you well know, I'm a weak man. I pray that it would be in your strength that I would rely on you as I preach. That you would give me the clarity of mind and clarity of heart to expound these wonderful truths to these dear, dear folks. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it was a little red wagon. I'm sure you've seen them before. A little metal red wagon. My new friend had... Sweat pouring off his face in the hot Texas sun as he pulled that wagon up the street filled with glass bottles. There were various varieties, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, RC Cola, Dr. Pepper, and Orange Crush, if you remember those. Actually, they still have those, I guess. The bottles were jingling against each other as he walked down the rough road. The two of us couldn't have been more different. I was five and lived in a small apartment. Our family was transient. We were all over the place. My mother and stepfather were there with with me, and and he was eight or nine, and he lived in the big white house right down the street. I was new to the neighborhood, and chances were that we were going to move on quickly. He was a fixture there. It wouldn't surprise me if he were the mayor of the town by now. He knew all the tricks of the neighborhood and all the shortcuts from place to place. I remember that hot summer. Our domain stretched four or five streets in every direction. We had bicycles. We loved to ride, and and I learned to jump ramps and pop wheelies. If you remember that, you pop a wheelie and you're down the street. You moms are probably saying, don't don't say that. Don't talk about jumping ramps and riding wheelies. We didn't have much money, though. I I can't even remember, I can't ever remember receiving an allowance. I, though my mom would occasionally buy me a Hot Wheels car or a Matchbox car, if you remember those, uh, when we went shopping, it was the, kind of the highlight of my time going shopping. I don't remember if I asked or if he just told me that he was going to the store across the street to sell those bottles back to the store. 
Now, I wouldn't have known at the time the word redemption, but I certainly understood and was amazed that these bottles had some worth. There was, there was, that was some serious dough for a poor boy like me. So when, I asked if, when he asked me if, he, if I wanted to join him, I had no hesitation. I remember tagging along with him and selling those bottles, even though I, didn't think, I don't think my mother would have liked or approved of me crossing that street you know, the street that we had to cross to get to the store. I'm certain I did a lot of stuff my mother wouldn't have approved of. Now, I'm not sure if my friend even shared any of the money with me. I guess it really doesn't matter. But I do remember being amazed that we could sell those dirty old bottles for real money. Of course, most of you realize that we were redeeming the bottles for cash, that, that soda companies take those bottles and they, they, they buy them and they clean them and they make them, they make them reusable. So they, they fill them back with soda and they put a, a lid on it and they sell it back to the, to the community. You probably, I think you can still redeem bottles in, in, even today in some places. You can sell your aluminum, aluminum cans as well, though that's not the same as selling a glass bottle to be used for or redeemed for its original purpose. The, bottle, the bottling companies just bought them back and put them back in, in circulation, as I said. Now, this is a great analogy. I love this analogy because that's exactly what God does for us when He redeems us. He buys us back from the slave market of sin and makes us sons. He restores us to our original purpose. Just like those bottles. Those dirty old bottles that are bought back by the soda company and cleaned and restored to their original purpose. We are bought back from the slave market of sin and he restores us to to our original purpose, yet he doesn't sell us again as slaves because we're made free in him. He gives us a position which is greater than we could ever imagine. He gives us a place in the family, and we're given a relationship with the king of the universe. This was God's original intent for man. He was created, man that is, was created to know the God of the universe, to have an intimate relationship with him. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed, when Adam disobeyed the word of God by eating the, the fruit which God commanded him not to eat, he fell. We, we were taken from our rightful place as sons of God and made to be slaves to sin. We, were, we owed a debt that we could never repay. Yet God paid our debt through the blood of Christ. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Beloved, that is redemption. Listen to Paul Tripp, Paul David Tripp. He says, and I quote, God is the ultimate musician. His music transforms your life. The notes of redemption rearrange your heart and restore your life. His songs of forgiveness, grace, reconciliation, truth, hope, sovereignty, and love give you back your humanity and restore your identity, end quote. Your true identity, I might add. Brothers and sisters, if we completely understood the depths of our sin against a holy God, we would be completely blown away by what God has done or what God has accomplished in Christ Jesus. Now, for the last two weeks, we've been studying Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. These verses form one long sentence in the Greek text. Now, in this sentence, Paul masterfully weaves together a deep theology of the Trinity and how each person in the Godhead participates in the formation of the body of Christ. He has given us great insight into the inner workings of the Godhead. Namely, God the Father has blessed you through election and through adoption as sons. 
God the Son has blessed you through redemption and forgiveness. And God the Holy Spirit has blessed you by sealing you in Him to ensure that you will never fall away from the love of God. Each person of the Godhead plays an astonishing and wonderful role in your salvation. Now, two weeks ago, we saw that these, again, these verses form one long praise for all that God has accomplished in saving us from sin and and forming the body of Christ. We need to make sure that we understand that this is not just saving us from sin, and it's not just adopting us, but it's also putting us together as one body, the body of Christ. Now, verse 3 gives us the main sentence or the proposition of the entire section. He says this in verse 3, Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Put simply, Paul wants you to, you as a believer in Christ, to understand what God has done for you in Christ. Beloved, He has blessed you if you are in Christ, if you have, have, if you have turned to Him, if you believe in what He has accomplished on the cross and in His resurrection, then you are a believer, and He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Brethren, if you are in Christ, you don't receive the scraps from the table. You have received everything due the firstborn son. Culturally speaking, this is the highest honor which can be given by a father. You might wonder then why the Bible calls us generally sons. In Paul's culture, in the culture of that day, the firstborn son received the highest honors. Beloved, Christ has received the highest honors as the Son of God, and you have been adopted as sons, receiving everything which is due Him. This applies to every man, woman, or child who is in Christ. If you are in Christ, you have been adopted as a firstborn son. You have been given an honored place at the table. The psalmist worshipfully puts it this way in Psalm 23, verse 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Listen to this, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So Ephesians 1, 3-14 is one long praise for how God has blessed you by saving you, by redeeming you, by adopting you, and by sealing you in Him, assuring that all of this will come to fruition. Now last week we learned that God the Father has blessed you by choosing you. He's, he's also blessed you by cleansing you. And He's blessed you by co-opting you or adopting you. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father chose us to be in Christ. He did this before you or I had any chance to do one thing, do anything one way or the other. And not only has God chosen you, not only has He chosen you, but He has blessed you by cleansing you and adopting you as a son. Beloved, this is what makes grace truly grace. If salvation were up to us to decide to follow God, then it would be our decision, our works that save us. But God has not saved us on the basis of our works so that no man may boast. He has saved us. He saved us before we could do anything one way or the other. Before you could ever make a decision. Now let me say something about the nature of grace. In the English language, we tend to equate grace with kindness. In other words, we tend to believe that God is, has saved us because of His kindness. But while God is kind to us, and while God is kind, our salvation is not simply God being kind. As a matter of fact, it's very difficult exegetically to say that grace is even an attribute of God, but that's a deeper subject. Said another way, grace is more about what God does than what He is or what God has done, than what He is. You are not saved because God is nice. You're not saved because God is kind. 
This understanding of God's grace is woefully short of what God has truly done for us in Christ. Now, let me give you an illustration. Let me give you a quick illustration. If your little girl is stuck on a cliff ledge and in need of rescue, and a rescuer is about to go up in a helicopter and be dropped down by cable to save her, now you probably would trust that, she, that, that this person knows what they're doing, right? They've been trained for this mission, but... What if you ask him about his training and credentials and he says, well, I've never done this, but I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. Really, that doesn't help my analogy. It's supposed to be funny. But <laughs> but what if he said, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm, I'm a really nice guy and I want to see your darling little girl saved. I'm a nice guy, but I want to see, I haven't had any training. I'm a nice guy and I want to see, him, see this, but I, and I want to see your little girl saved. You'd probably say, wait a minute, I need an expert. Give me someone who can accomplish this mission. In other words, you would need more than a kind-hearted rescuer to save your little girl. In other words, being kind in and of itself doesn't do anything. doesn't do anything. Now stick with me here. I'm going to give you a little grammar lesson. Biblically, grace is a verbal noun. As such, it is an action. It's actually doing something. I'm sure you've heard that love is not just a feeling, it is an action. You wives may tell your husband, you say you, say you love me, but you need to prove it by buying me flowers and taking me to my favorite restaurant. Actually, truly, we need to prove it by changing diapers, giving baths, playing with the kids after a long day of work, and, and of course, killing spiders. But I digress. But we need to actually prove that we love them by our actions. We can't just say it and then not live it. I hate spiders, by the way. So for me, killing spiders is, is really, truly showing my love. There's a, but there's a grammatical basis for love being an action. One of the main verbs for love in the Greek is derived from the verb agapao. Now, just stick with me, I know, stick, stick with me, which means I love, which means I love. The Greek word then for love is derived from that verb. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an action. It's what we do. The Greek word for grace is also derived from a verb. Look at verse 6. We saw it last week. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us. That's what the NAS says. It actually could be, it could be translated, which He graced on us. Which He graced on us in the Beloved. Grace, then, is an action. God graces you, or He shows favor to you. Turn to Ephesians 4.32. Says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also or also has forgiven you. The Greek words translated "forgiven" are literally the verbs which are normally translated "grace" when presented as a verbal noun. In other words, God didn't just forgive you; He graced you. He graced you. Although God is kind, although God is absolutely loving. He doesn't save you by His kindness. Grace, then, is not just being kind or nice. He's actually doing something for you. Therefore, therefore, work salvation conflicts with God's grace. We tend to think we do good works which God approves, therefore He shows kindness to us. you get that? So we do good works which God approves, then God shows kindness to us because of what we do. That's our, that's our tendency. That's our tendency, even legalistically, to think that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do good things in order to, be, to look good. But biblically speaking, you have done nothing good, and He inter intervenes and saves you despite your sin. Despite what you've done, good or bad. He intervenes and saves you despite your sins. In other words, you are helpless and cannot do anything to save yourself. Just like being on the cliff's ledge, 
You can't go up or you can't you can't go down. You need someone to save you, save you. You can't save yourself. So grace then is God's unilateral intervention for your good. Unilateral means he intervened alone, without your help, without any help at all. He acts by himself, by his own power, for your good and his glory. In Psalm 107, verse 1, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. We read this last week. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. The, Greek, or the Hebrew word here, translated loving kindness, is the word hesed. Hesed. So many of you heard this word. God shows loving kindness, hesed, by redeeming his people from their helplessness. He does this when they are most helpless. And that shows his glory. That shows his glory. When we are at our most helpless, it's when, we, it's when he redeems us. I, I have heard a professor say that, that he believes that, that God has sent Israel into exile and one day will save them from exile... They are still in exile. Then one day he will save them from exile to, at, when they're at their most helpless to show that he is the one who is full of glory. The one who is able to save by his grace. It's the one who shows hesed, loving kindness. His loving intervention is best seen when you can't save yourself. If you're on that cliff's ledge and you get, you get no credit for saving yourselves. You wouldn't say at the press conference, with my eagle vision, I saw this guy swinging in front of me and I saved myself by grabbing a hold of him and catching a ride down. I'm just glad I saw him in time. I think that the guy that saved you might, might grab you by the throat, right? Am I supposed to say that in the pulpit? You had nothing to do with your rescue. You were helpless on the cliff's edge. And even the most prideful person wouldn't take credit for saving themselves in that situation. In the same way, in the same way, God unilaterally intervenes and changes the entire, the entire course of your life. You had nothing to do with it. And let me say this. When we protest election, we're robbing God of his rightful claim that he is supreme, he is imminent, and he is full of grace. You are destroying the beauty of salvation because it is all of God and it all goes back to him. And let me say one last thing about this and then we'll move on. It has been said, I think it's R.C. Sproul, that the doctrine of election is the ultimate surrender. The ultimate surrender. You stop thinking that this is all about you and all about you getting into heaven. You see, the doctrine of election proves that God is righteous. He has the power to save. He is glorious and he is preeminent. He is the sovereign one. He is the sovereign one. And all of this leads to the next verses and the role of God's beloved son. So let's look at our first point this morning. All of that was review and, and adding to what I have already preached. <clears throat> let's look at our first point. We, we're going to use our same proposition statement. Paul wants his readers to comprehend the full depth, or breadth and depth, of the threefold blessing of believers through the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 1.3. And God the Son, then, has blessed you by first redeeming you. He has blessed you by first redeeming you. Now let me read quickly. Let me read the verses that we're going to be studying this morning. Starting in verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. We'll stop right there. We'll stop right there. As we have said, as we've said many times, and we've even said this morning, when man fell into sin in the garden, he fell into the bondage of sin. As he fell into the bondage. The Bible was very clear about this predicament. Very, very clear. 
Just listen to this. In John 8.34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Now, according to, according to Jesus, if you've committed even one sin, then you are a slave to sin. Similarly, similarly can't get that out. James warns in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he is guilty of what? All. The whole law. In Romans 6.17, the Apostle Paul says that you are a doulos, a slave of sin. And he says in Romans 3.9 that this applies to all men. There's none that are, accept- that are accepted. There are no exceptions. In Romans 3.10, he, claims that, he exclaims that there is none righteous, not even one. Romans 7.14, he says that we are sold under sin that is, that is sold into the bondage of sin. In Romans 8.21, it even says that creation is in slavery to corruption and longs to be free because of man's sin. Beloved, we have been placed into bondage because of our sin. And I'm sure you can feel that I'm sure that you can feel that bondage, especially if you're here today as an unbeliever. You may not realize it, but you it's there. I remember. I remember as an unbeliever, I continually ate at the trough of my sin, the slop, if you will, of my sin. I would gorge myself on the putrid swill. And when I had my fill, I'd find myself utterly dissatisfied and hating what I had done. And I'd promise myself never to return. And yet I would return again and again and again. And the more I returned, the more depressed I became. I'm convinced that this is the reason many people turn to drugs and alcohol, right? Because they're wanting to cover the, the heartbreak, the, the depression that caused, is caused by the, the return again and again to the sin. They want to cover, they want to cover the hurt. They can't. Desperately, desperately trying to, to make themselves feel good, to cover the devastating effects of their sin. And it starts small, but it gains steam rapidly until they're suffering even more under the weight of their drug and alcohol use, which, of course, makes things even much worse. We've all seen it, haven't we? Beloved, I remember being enslaved to my sin. I remember the bondage. I could do nothing else. Beloved, sin is your captive. Sin is your enemy. Sin holds us for a ransom and it demands a price to be paid to release us from its clutches. And what is that ransom? What is that price owed? It's death. Death. The wages of sin is death. God told Adam that in the day that he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. Now, he didn't die physically that day, but he died spiritually. And eventually, it led to his physical demise, his physical death. Therefore, in order to purchase sinners from the clutches of sin, there must be then death. The writer of Hebrews states it this way, And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is what? There is no forgiveness. Therefore, beloved, we have a problem. We have been sold into bondage to sin, and we owe an infinite debt that we can never repay. But Paul says, you know, I say this a lot, the two glorious, most glorious words in the, in the New Testament, in the Bible, in Him. In Him. In Him. There, that is in the Redeemer. The beloved one from verse 6, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one Redeemer, and that is the beloved one. The beloved one. The meaning of that phrase can be seen at Jesus' baptism and in His transfiguration, where God the Father says, proclaimed 
This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's in Matthew 17 is the, is the transfiguration. Matthew 3 is the baptism. I think it's Matthew 3. By faith, then, we're made one with Jesus because we are his body, because we are Christ in the world. Therefore, we are acceptable to God in Christ, and it is in him that we have redemption. Jesus is the recipient, as we've said, of all that God gives out of his love. And the only way that we can receive what God gives is just to be in the beloved one. Who is the recipient of all the goodness of God. All that we have is in Christ, and it is because of Him that we can have redemption. Now, the who, who is the we? Who is the we? Clearly, Paul is referring to the elect of God, the chosen of God. We see that clearly here in this section. These are the ones for which Jesus died to save. It can be called, I believe, particular redemption. Particular redemption. Jesus, in other words, died for His people to redeem His people. They are a particular and peculiar people. Peter refers to these people as the people of God. That's 1 Peter 2.11. He also says in 1 Peter 2.9 that they are a people for God's own possession. If you turn over to Ephesians 2, Paul gives a little bit more detail as to who he's talking about. It says, And you... You were dead in your sins and trespass, trespasses and sins. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. It was, it was us. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when... They, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. Of course, I'm applying this to us. He saved us by His grace. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Beloved, we are the redeemed. If you are in Christ, if you, have, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are the redeemed. John MacArthur says this, The lewd, the greedy, the blind, the ignorant, the alienated, the darkened, the vain, strangers, no hope, without God, on and on, evil, following Satan, that's us. That's us, the redeemed. God has chosen to redeem sinners like us. Here's the beauty of it. We did nothing to deserve what Christ has done. We did nothing to deserve what he has accomplished. The question is, what did he do? Paul says that we have redemption. We have redemption. So we need to define what that is. Basically, it's simply this. It's the the deliverance by the payment of a price. It's simply deliverance by the payment of a price. When the noun appears in non-biblical Greek, it, it has a meaning of holding for ransom or paying a ransom. It was mostly used to refer to the freeing of slaves through the payment of a price. We have sinned against God's holiness and have invoked a penalty for our trespasses against Him. We owe a ransom price which must be used to purchase us from the slave market of sin. Now, I want to be careful. We're not, God is not paying Satan. God is not paying Satan. He's not, it's not, that's called the ransom theory. It's, we have not sinned against Satan. We've sinned against a holy God. It's Him that we owe the price to. You can look at it this way. There were slaves in Paul's culture in this part of the world, the Roman Empire. Buying and selling slaves was a common thing, and it was, it was done openly on the slave market. Now, I was thinking earlier, you know, have you ever been to a cattle auction? 
It's a fascinating thing to observe the dance between the auctioneer and the bidders as the auctioneer quickly rattles off bids for livestock working to reveal the highest bidder. If you've ever seen it, it's, it's an amazing thing. It's just, the, I, I don't, the chaos is incredible. But somehow there's organization to it all. As distasteful and wrong as it is, the, they bought and sold slaves in a similar fashion. And as distasteful as it was, there were times when slaves were purchased for the express purpose of setting them free. So someone might think highly of a certain slave and, and wanted to purchase them to set them free. They could go to the slave's owner and negotiate a price for that slave. Or you could also use that, that same analogy for a captive from, a war, from war. A price was ne- negotiated to purchase the slave or captive for the express purpose of setting them free. This example gives us and lets us see how Paul is using this word here. In him, we have the ransom price then, which sets us free. Therefore, redemption is the deliverance by the payment of price. According to John MacArthur, listen to this, redemption is an act of God by which he himself pays as a ransom the price of sin, which has outraged his holiness, end quote. Again, that goes back to making sure that we understand that it's God the Father, God Himself, that we have sinned against. We have not sinned against anyone else. Well, we sin against Him. He's the one we have sinned against His holiness. Paul goes on to say that we have redemption through His blood. We've already seen that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's Hebrews 9. The, the theology of shed blood has been understood from the very beginning. In Genesis 3, God provided animal skins to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. The death and shed blood of those animals set in motion the requirement of shedding of blood for the covering of sins. Later in Leviticus 17.11, it says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So the theology of the shed blood is very clear, that it takes the, it's the shedding of blood that atones for sin. But as the writer of Hebrews reminds his readers in Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible, though, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. The, the blood would just literally run off the Temple Mount from all the animals that were slaughtered. And yet it was done over and over and over and over. You see, redemption required the perfect sacrifice. Sacrifice of the Lamb of God. John the Baptist identifies who this is. In John 1.29, he, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Beloved, it was Jesus' shed blood on the cross that has redeemed you from the slave market of sin. In Him you have been redeemed. Listen to Paul in Romans 3.23-25. We, we quote, 323 a lot for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith you have been justified by the gift of grace by the means of the redemption price paid by Christ Jesus this then is appropriated, or we can, we can benefit from it, if you will, through faith in what Christ has accomplished by dying on the cross for your sin. And all of this was accomplished in the plan and foreknowledge of the Father. He set it in motion before the foundation of the world. Colossians 1.20, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, that's in Christ, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. 
Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. You see, we have been plunged into the blood of the Lamb and have been cleansed from our sins. Again, if you are in Christ. In the words of the Apostle John, in 1 John 1, 7-9, it says, But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the if statement. If we walk in the light, as he himself walks in the light then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us. He goes on to say in verse 8, If we say we have no sin, and we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Stop right there. Is that it? No. He also cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We just sang a song. There is a fountain filled with blood. It's written by William Cowper. We sang the words, verse 1, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. We also said earlier that it's by faith that we appropriate this. And in verse 2, Cowper says this, Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. This redemption price came at great cost to the Father and the Son. Randy Alcorn puts it this way, The cost of redemption cannot be overstated. The wonders of grace cannot be overemphasized. Christ took the hell that he didn't deserve so that we could have the heaven we don't deserve. End quote. Paul goes on to say, look at your text, the forgiveness of sins, or trespasses that is. Beloved, you have been given, forgiven your trespasses. The, Paul, the word Paul uses here can be defined as a violation of moral standards and offense. We have broken God's law. We have sinned against Him. Yet, God's people have been forgiven of their sins through the blood of Christ. In the Old Testament, Israel had the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. On that day, there were two goats that were used by the high priest. One of the goats was sacrificed, and the blood of that goat was sprinkled on the altar. The the priest laid his hands on the other goat's head and symbolically laid all the people's sins on the head of that goat. In other other words, he confessed the sins of of the people's sins on the head of the goat. And that goat was sent into the wilderness where it could never find its way back again. This symbolized the taking of, taking of sin and sending it away where it could never, ever be seen again. Beloved, this describes forgiveness. The word means to send away, never to return. Brethren, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your sins have been sent away, never to return. The psalmist writes this, or says it this way in Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he has removed our transgressions from us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has loved you, and he has released you from your sins by his blood. He has purchased for himself a people, the church of the living God. That's Acts twenty twenty eight. This was his purpose in coming. R.C. Sproul says it this way. And I quote, The idea of being the substitute and offering an atonement, and offering an atonement to satisfy the demands of God's law for others was something Christ understood as his mission from the moment he entered the world and took upon himself a human nature. 
He came from heaven as the gift of the Father for the express purpose of working out redemption as our substitute, doing for us what we could not possibly do for ourselves. End quote. Beloved, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Let's look at our second point quickly this morning. I know it's toward the end. I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be fast. He has blessed you by raining His grace upon you. It's verse 7b and into verse 8. It says, According to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. Really, right there, right here, we're right back where we started. All of this is by God's grace. Christ died for us. He was the substitute on the cross for us. We should have endured the wrath of the Father, yet He did so. We should have paid that price in in eternity, in hell, suffering the wrath of God, yet He paid that price. You see, God's justice is mingled with His mercy. God provided a Redeemer, a substitute. Do you remember when Abraham took Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him? What did he say? Isaac asked him, Hey, Dad, we're going to do a sacrifice, but I don't, we're not taking a sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice? What did Abraham say? God will provide. Son, God will provide. You see, when we needed a sacrifice, a substitute, God provided the perfect one. His own Son was our substitute, and it was all by His grace. He made this plan from the foundation of the world according to the riches of His grace, which He rained down upon us. We were in the harsh desert of our sin We needed water. There was no oasis in sight. We needed saving. We couldn't save ourselves. We were helpless. We were dead. Gone. Dead. Yet God in Christ has set us free. Made us alive. He's raised us up and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. And we are free indeed. And Christ is of infinite value. He he alone was able to pay the infinite cost to redeem His people. It's the abundance, the abundance of His grace. The riches of His grace. Beloved, what Christ has done should make it our joy to serve Him. It should make it our joy to serve Him and to serve one another. Let me, let me finish by reminding you why Paul is writing these things to, to this church and ultimately to his greater church. He wants the church to understand what God has accomplished in saving us. He has created a new humanity. Beloved, you, you who are sitting here today in this church, if you are saved, you are a new humanity. That's why we can come from so many uh, diverse areas, so many diverse backgrounds, and be so many different type of people, and come together in this church and be one. Because we are a new man. He's created for himself worshipers who will serve him now in his church. And we will serve him forever as we dwell with him for eternity. This should drive us to serve Him even more now. We serve Him out of of the joy of being in Christ. Make sure you understand that. We serve Him because of the joy of what Christ has done, what Christ has accomplished in redeeming His people. Let me close with a quote by Johnny Erickson Tata. I think it's it's very, very appropriate to be reminded of her life as a quadriplegic. She, everything is against her physically. 
She spent most of her years in a wheelchair, unable to move most of her body due to a diving accident. She broke her neck. Yet, she served the Lord with all her heart, her entire life. She's given her life to serve Christ. She doesn't complain that, that I've seen. She served her Lord with great joy. She's a great example to all of us. Consider her words as we close. However tiring our work may be, how could it ever be tiresome? How could it be anything less than a joy to serve the one who has given us all things for life and enrichment and enjoyment? Jesus, who suffered so much to secure our salvation. End quote. should be our great joy to serve him, to love him just knowing what he's done for us in Christ by suffering on the cross for our sins. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again as we close this time. I pray for those who are here and don't know you. in bondage thinking the world is going to bring happiness and satisfaction thinking that they can fall headlong after the world and they're going to gain something from it making the world's treasure their greatest treasure Why would we go? Why would we dine at the pigsty when we can sit at your table? Lord, I pray for those who are lost, even sitting here today, that they would turn to you, that they would come to you Father, we thank you that you have saved your people. We praise you for what Christ has done in coming and dying on the cross as an atonement for our sins, as the atonement for our sins. Praise your holy name that from the foundation of the world you set this in motion and there is nothing that will stop it, nothing that will thwart it, What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Nothing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.